0: Chapter 17, we have recorded there what is truly the Lord's Prayer. The entire chapter is devoted to the prayer that Jesus offered to the Father during His last hours on the earth. Tonight, and the Lord willing, in two other lessons, I'd like to divide this prayer into the three logical divisions in which it can be divided, and look at three lessons in some detail on this poignant and fervent prayer of Jesus, that which is truly the Lord's Prayer. The model prayer is given to us as a part of the Sermon on the Mount, and I recognize that it has often and is most often called the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But That is really the model prayer as Jesus was teaching how to pray. This is truly the Lord's prayer. That is the prayer that he prayed. And it is a prayer from which we can learn some tremendously powerful lessons and gain tremendous insights into the sacrificial work that Jesus so lovingly and unselfishly accomplished in his years upon this earth. The chapter begins, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said. The phrase these words takes us back to the previous chapter and really beyond the previous chapter all the way back to chapter 14 of John verse 1 which begins, let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And then Jesus continued to encourage a group of despondent disciples during his last hours with them on earth as he was about to leave them. And in that upper room where the Passover was observed and where the Lord's Supper was instituted, after these sayings to these disciples, Jesus offered this prayer. He offered it aloud. Not simply in his mind, but he verbalized it. We know that from verse 13, which says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And so he offered the prayer to the Father, and in so doing, it was some of the final admonition as well, from which the disciples who were participants in this prayer, who heard this prayer being verbalized by the Lord, were able to gain hopefully strength and comfort and encouragement for a future of trial, a future of tribulation, but ultimately Triumph. And even though the words that were spoken in John chapters 14 through 16 were spoken in the shadow of the cross, those words ended in triumph. They ended in a triumphal manner. Listen to verse 33 of John 16. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. A very positive note upon which to end all of that beautiful, marvelous, unmatched teaching that no other human being could have ever given as did the Son of God in those three chapters. All one has to do is read objectively the Lord's words to realize no man, mere man, could have spoken as he spoke. And the people of his day understood that, did they not? When we studied the Sermon on the Mount, it ended with what? When he had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his sayings, for he spoke as one having authority and not as the scribes. He comes back to that authority in the beginning part of what is truly the Lord's Prayer here in John 17. Tonight we look at the first five verses, in which Jesus, first of all, prays for Himself. Next week, the Lord willing, we will look at verses 6 through 19, in which the Lord prays for His disciples, the apostles. Those eleven who were left with Him at this time, and one who would be chosen to replace the one who had already gone out, to do that awful deed of betrayal. And then finally, in verses 20 through the remainder of the chapter, Jesus turns his attention in his prayer to believers for all time to come and prays that they may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And in those final verses, we will see. A pattern for the unity, the only unity that can possibly be pleasing to God. Not agreeing to disagree, but unity as God and Christ are one. But tonight, let's look together at the first five verses. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, where the Father resides in the sense that his throne is there, but his omnipresence is very well documented, and he begins the prayer, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. You remember that during his earthly ministry, there were times when he was threatened, and yet his hour had not come, and because it had not come, and because the timing was not Right, in God's sight, and in the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was not taken. Go back to John 7, and verse 30, for example. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. One chapter later, also at verse 30, in chapter 8. In chapter, or rather in chapter... uh, 8, yes, in verse 20. In chapter 8 and verse 20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. John 7, verse 30, John 8, verse 20, these are two examples where Jesus was not taken at that time because his mission had not been fulfilled. His work was not finished. The time was not right. His hour had not come. But here, as Jesus prays to the Father, he understands and appreciates the hour has now come. It is just but a short, very short time away. But you know, in this statement, we also see something about which we've spoken in times past about part of the pain of Jesus that he suffered, not just on Calvary physically. Not even the the agony of, of being taken, as it were, from the Father for a period of time in the sense that he was not under disapproval by the Father, but that he bore the sins of all mankind for all time to come and all past sins on his sinless shoulders alone. There was another pain about which we have spoken which you may remember, and that was the pain of anticipation pain of anticipation of all of that he knew he knew before it occurred that it was coming and when we talked about that if you may recall in times past we asked the question how would you like to know the future how would you like to know what's going to happen to you how would you like to know how you are going to die well you might say well if I were going to die at age 100 in my sleep peacefully on my pillow? I wouldn't mind knowing about that, maybe not. But you don't know that, none of us does. We don't know. We don't know the, the, the pain of the future, we don't know the suffering that comes, but what if we did know what Jesus well knew and the immeasurable, unimaginable, from a human perspective, agony that he would face As he became the sin sacrifice for all of us. Sinless, but the sin sacrifice. One can only imagine, one can only imagine the pain from the human perspective, and Jesus was human as well as divine, that he suffered in the anticipation. And he spoke of what was coming on more than one occasion. At what point in his life did he know what was coming? Was, was it when he was 12, when he was at the temple and his folks missed him and came back for him and he responded, do you not know that I must be about my father's business? That may be some indication right there that at 12 years old he knew that this hour was coming. How would you like to know that at age 12? I don't know that he knew it then for sure. We're not absolutely certain. We're not told. But we are told well before this occurred, well before we have come to this hour, we're told that he knew that he would be scourged, that he would be crucified, that he would cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And now that hour has come. And how does he view it? He prays glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. When he prays glorify your son that your son also may glorify you to what does he make reference? Death. He makes reference to death. He makes reference to the crucifixion. He makes reference to the very event that was absolutely essential for the salvation of you and me. And all mankind who would come to him in obedience to his gospel. Yes, he knows that he must go to Calvary. And he knows that his death will glorify God. You remember we studied just this morning about another man's death that would glorify God. Do we know that death can glorify God? We do, John 21, remember? After being told by Jesus... Peter was told by Jesus, when you were young, you girded yourself, you walked where you wished, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And how does John, by inspiration, describe what Jesus just said? He says, this he spoke, signifying by what death he would, what? Glorify God. Our death must glorify God if we're if we're going to be saved. We have to die a faithful death. We can die at peace on our pillows at night, in our sleep, and if we die faithfully, our death will glorify God. We can die as martyrs, as did many in the early church, and our deaths, if we die faithfully, will glorify God. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints, because every one of those deaths glorifies God. And that is no doubt that to which Jesus refers when he says, Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. But the death alone would not have glorified God had it not been followed by the resurrection in the sense that it would not have glorified God in a way that will allow us to glorify God in life and in death. But this also says something about those who contend that Jesus, as he lived had a mission, and yet his mission ended in disappointment and death, that he had no such thing in mind, that his mission was to be triumphant in some other way other than to die a horrific and shameful death on Calvary. And this denies that contention. Jesus is saying, I know how I'm going to die, and I know that dying is a part of my mission." And I will not die in disappointment. I will die glorifying the Father. Glorify your Son so that your Son also may glorify you. That is, in death. And then in verse 2, as he continues to pray for himself, he prays, As you have given him, that is, the Son, authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. The first phrase there, as you have given him authority over all flesh, reminds us of Matthew 28, 18 and following. Jesus came to them and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he commissioned the disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But when he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, that is equivalent to this statement, as you have given him authority over all flesh. And it is a reminder that while all flesh will never submit to that authority, In fact, most of flesh will never submit to that authority tragically. Nonetheless, he still has that authority. And one day, when day is no more, all flesh will recognize that authority. Every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow. Tragically, those confessions and those prostrations will come at a time... And they can benefit nothing to those to whom he has not given eternal life and to whom does he give eternal life as many as you have given him only those who have been given to Christ by the father will ultimately have eternal life in reality And only those who have been given to the Christ by the Father have the promise of eternal life now. And that is you if you're a Christian. They are those who are Christians. But the key question that arises is, how does God give Christ disciples? How does He give Christ disciples? Well, He gives them disciples... By obedience to the gospel. It's not some arbitrary Calvinistic approach to predestination as the Calvinists contend. But it is rather given to those who become obedient to his will. In John chapter 3. In John chapter 3 at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. But then verse 36 says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. God has given all authority to Jesus, but verse 36 of John 3 reminds us that He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on Him. And believes there is in that present active indicative tense that means He who keeps on believing in the Son has everlasting life. He who stops believing in the Son no longer has everlasting life. Therefore, it is not everlasting life that those who obey the gospel are given in reality and that it cannot be forfeited or that it cannot be taken away, as some contend, again, with the once-saved-always-saved doctrine. But just the opposite is the case. He who keeps on believing keeps on having everlasting life. The reverse of that has to be true. He who stops believing stops having everlasting life. And we have looked at some corollary passages that make it abundantly clear that eternal life is given to the obedient believer in promise and not in reality with no possibility of forfeiting that eternal life. Listen to 1 John 2.25. John writes, this is the promise which he promised us eternal life. This is the what? This is the promise which he promised us. What is it, John? Eternal life. Paul writes in Titus 1 and verse 2 that we live, in effect, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Perfectly Harmonious with John's writing. But think about the word hope, and we've talked about it before. In hope of eternal life. Do you hope for something you already have? If it is the case that once I'm saved, I'm always saved, meaning I have eternal life here and now, and nothing can change that, then I don't live in hope of eternal life. I cannot live in hope of eternal life. I already have it, and I cannot hope for something I already have. And yet Paul, by inspiration, says it is in hope of eternal life that we live. And the same writer said what in Romans 8, 24? We're saved by hope, but we do not hope for that which we already have. An inspired man made the argument, not a fallible preacher. A fallible apostle, yes, from the standpoint of his life, but not from the standpoint of his writing. And so, when Jesus says that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him, how does he give them to Jesus? Through teaching and obedience to the teaching. And the eternal life that is given is a promise, not an absolute reality. You can go back to John chapter 6 and see this principle clearly pointed out by Jesus himself about the giving of disciples to the father through teaching listen to john 6:44 and 45 no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him now let me stop and ask you a question what's the difference in the father drawing someone to jesus and the father giving someone to jesus no difference whatsoever But when I read verse 45 of John 6, you will know exactly, if you had any doubt, about how the drawing is done, how the giving is achieved. Verse 45 goes on. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That dispels forevermore the idea that there's an arbitrary giving of disciples to the Father based on predestination. And it also explains fully that the drawing and the giving, those are accomplished through what? Teaching. The Father gives the Son disciples as disciples are drawn to Christ by His what? His teaching, by His Word. And that's what Jesus is referring to here in this prayer. And then he gets more specific as to how that eternal life, that promise of eternal life is achieved. In verse 3, as the prayer continues, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now he gets specific as to how the eternal life, or the promise of eternal life, is obtained. It comes through knowing you, Jesus says, by knowing the Father. But how does one know the Father? What is the means by which we come to know the Father? The answer is the Son. And you remember again, you remember again in this same gospel account, John's account, when Philip, Back in John 14, in this same context in which Jesus was giving these words right before the prayer, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And how did Jesus respond? He said, Philip, have I been so long with you, and yet have you not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? So in his prayer... This is eternal life, verse 3, that they may know you, the only true God. Jesus showed us the only true God. Jesus showed us the Father and the Christ through whom we must come to the Father. But the point is, we must come through Jesus Christ. And only those who do, by obedience to his gospel, have that promise of eternal life. Remember what the Hebrews writer declared about it in Hebrews 5, 8, and 9? Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to whom? To all who what? Who obey him. The author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. To all who come to know the Father through the Son and through obedience to the teaching of the Son, he says, whom you have sent. Then in verse 4, he declares in this prayer to God, the Father, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. It was as good as done. No, it was not absolutely completed in the sense that he had not yet died on the cross, but he was determined to go there. He was determined to do the will of the Father, whatever that will was. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. I recognize that one of the seven sayings from the cross was, it is finished. That's when it was literally finished. But here it is expressed as though already accomplished because of the determination, the perfect determination of Jesus to do the will of God. And I recognize that as he agonized and sweat literally drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he prayed three times, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But he quickly added, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And that's why he could pray here, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. There's no question about the fact that we're to follow Jesus if we are to be pleasing to God and to Christ and if we're to have any hope of salvation. But in following him, how do we do that? By doing the same thing he did? By dying on a cross? No, I don't mean... That I mean by glorifying God while we live. And how do we glorify God while we live? In this same gospel account, he tells us exactly how to do that. In John chapter 15, where he begins, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. He takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. And then down at verse 8, in that exchange, He says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so you will be my disciples. I have glorified you on the earth. How do we emulate the Christ in glorifying God on the earth? By bearing much fruit. Much fruit. Jesus tells us how to emulate the Savior in glorifying God. We glorify Him when we're born again. We glorify Him when we live throughout our lives bearing much fruit for the Master. And finally, we glorify Him when we die, if we die in the Lord. And that's how we follow the Christ to glorify God and to in effect be able to say, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. And we should well know what that work is because it is clearly defined throughout the word. And then he prays for something that he had been without for about 33 years. Equality with God. And now, O Father, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. I'm coming home very soon, He sang. And when I get there, I want to be glorified with what I was so willing to lovingly sacrifice when I came to this earth to make salvation possible for all mankind. Did I have to give that up to begin with? No. Didn't have to, but I did. Suffered immensely. Lived without a place to call my own in terms of a home. Died the most cruel death anyone could possibly die. Didn't have to do it at all, but I did and now I'm coming home. Glorify me together with, literally with, indicates alongside. Put me back alongside you. And that's where he is. That's where he has sat down, according to the Hebrews writer, at the right hand of God. Having, once again, what he so lovingly gave up long ago, Philippians 2, 6-11 through 11 is the obvious cross-reference here, isn't it? Where the Apostle Paul writes about that sacrifice of equality with God. And in the second chapter of Philippians, beginning at verse 6, in that letter, the Apostle Paul speaks of that giving up of what literally was equality with God. As he writes, after admonishing us in verse 5, to let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, he says, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, which is a way of saying what? He was equal with God. Didn't consider that robbery to be equal with God. He was equal with God but made himself of no reputation. The American standard there says, but emptied himself. Emptied himself. Made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now verse 9. Therefore God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's what Jesus is praying for. And at the time Paul penned those words in Philippians, he had gone home and his prayer had been answered and he was alongside the father reigning even now as king of kings and lord of lords and so ends this portion of his fervent and poignant prayer to the father for himself next time the lord willing we will see him turn his attention To those apostles whom he loved dearly and for whom he prayed fervently. Tonight as we close these thoughts, can you say that your life is bringing glory to God? Are you glorifying him? Have you glorified him by being born again? That is, by simply obeying the gospel. That's what being born again means believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the son of God to repent of your sins confess him as the Christ be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins then you've been born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible by the word of God Peter says which lives and abides forever and if you have glorified God in being born spiritually are you glorifying him now as you live for him if not and come home to your first love and repentance and confession of any sin that's public in nature. And for all those who need no repentance but who have been born again and who are glorifying God by your life, by bearing much fruit, continue to bear that fruit even in death and by your death, no matter when it comes or how it comes, you will glorify God. Is there any goal... Any mission as great as the mission that has been given to every Christian to glorify the God of heaven? No, indeed. If you need to respond, will you come as we stand to sing?